Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host Jack Perks and today I'm going to be talking to wildlife artist Robert E. Fuller. He has produced some stunning work over the years and is particularly known for his work with mustelids in his own garden such as weasels and stoats. However we're going to cover the news first. So this news story caught my eye. It is about an aquatic beetle that survives being swallowed alive by frogs. Now I've heard recently that carp eggs can actually survive going through the digestive tract of mallards and that's one theory as to how some fish will end up in ponds in the middle of nowhere. That ducks eat them and a small percentage of eggs survive but they can proliferate from that. Um, I still think it's mostly people chucking fish in ponds but that has been proven that carp, some carp eggs can survive but more recently a beetle has shown to be surviving through frogs. So the Asian aquatic beetle named, oh god I'm going to have a go at this scientific name, Regimbatia atenatua, sounds like a Harry Potter spell, uh, I can't quite say that, but anyway these beetles are very very hard and 90% of swallowed beetles were excreted within 6 hours of being eaten and surprisingly were still alive, so 90% is a huge amount to, uh, to actually survive that. The beetle's tough protective exoskeleton helps as does a bubble of air trapped under its wing case, which allows it to breathe. But there's much more to it than that. While dead material takes more than a day to travel through the length of the gut, one beetle managed to cover the distance in just six minutes. So they power through the frog to get out of there. So that's incredible that they've developed this really nifty way of surviving being eaten, which most animals don't get to do. Let's talk about our guest anyway, Robert E. Fuller, incredible wildlife artist, appeared on, on various nature programmes, so I was really pleased to have him on the podcast. We talk a little bit about the work that he does, some of his background as an artist, and some tips and hints if you want to get into wildlife art yourself. So here's our chat. Well, thanks for joining me, Rob. No problem. Do you prefer Rob or Robert, actually? Uh, Rob's fine, yeah. Rob's, I, okay. I get too, yeah. too familiar with shortening names. My name's Jack, so I can't really shorten that any more down to no. <laughs> J or something like that. Um, well, you're the first yeah. artist we've had on, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this, just to kind of look at the process mm-hmm. uh, behind it all. So I'm going to start with what you're yeah. most well associated with, which is the mustelids in your garden, uh, particularly stoats and weasels, yeah. um, and the setups that you've created. Yeah. So where did all that start? It sort of starts every year, I, I sort of try and set myself a challenge of uh, filming a new subject and actually, you know, almost dedicating that whole year to that one subject. Uh, other little bits of wildlife fit in, uh, but it's not until you actually spend a lot of time with animal, these animals, you actually get to real grips with them uh, and understand them. And I kept, in the back of my mind, it was just really niggling me, uh, stoats and weasels. I kept seeing them passing through my garden, I'd grab a camera, I'll try and get them out of the window, I'll try and go outside. And I never, ever have got a decent uh, photograph of a stoat or a weasel up until six years ago. And uh, I spotted this female weasel out in the studio window, uh, just hunting. And I just thought, I just wondered if that could be the next sort of project. Now that project has then ended up lasting six years. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I got totally obsessed and immersed with the, the wild stoats and weasels in my garden. And trying to understand them, I understand who's related to who, 
the family history. The only problem I've got is stoats can kill weasels, and uh, that's one of their biggest biggest sort of predators is the stoats uh, taking the weasels. So most of the weasels I've had living in my garden, I would say 90% of them have ended up being predated by the stoats, uh, which is, is a real right? shame. I absolutely love both. So the habitats that I've designed for the uh, weasels, uh, where I've got, you know, actually built nesting chambers uh, and feeding boxes and things, uh, they've all got very small holes, so the stoats are able to get in. But I've literally covered this whole area with cameras. So I can see, you know, when the stoats are arriving from the hedge lines uh, in this sort of beautiful landscape that we have here. So I know when they come in, I spot them on camera, I know which camera they're gonna to go to next. And then I've got a network of hides uh, in the garden, which some actually have a tunnel underground from a living room, uh, a six meter long tunnel that I go through to get into a, uh, a hide. In there I've got monitors, so I can see what's happening with the stoats uh, or the weasels, and then actually start filming and photographing them. And I've probably now, uh, got the biggest bank of wild stone weasel footage and photographs of anyone in the world, I should think, because uh, that's just literally been my life for six years, well, as well as painting. <laughs> yeah, well, there's not a lot, is there? If you if you kind of Google uh, weasel weasel images particularly, I know there's a little bit more of stoke, but not a huge amount. They're, they're not an easy subject to work, you know, as you can well attest, they're not an easy subject to work yeah. with. So what you've achieved yeah. is um, is bonkers, really. <laughs> Yeah, 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 they're proper tricky. And the more, the more little nuggets of information I've found out, you know, I've filmed both steep stoats and weasels mating in the nest. I nearly filmed one giving birth last year, but a male stoat kept going in and pestering her uh, and rumbling her around uh, because after she's given birth, uh, she'll actually come into season straight away. And she was then actually mated a week later uh, she avoided them uh, and he actually pushed her out of the nest chamber where she was going to give birth uh, uh. three days before she gave birth. But she actually gave birth about four metres away from where I'm stood now underneath a, a flat roof under some decking here. <laughs> so, so she didn't give birth on camera, but she gave birth just a few metres away from where I paint every day. And uh, so that was pretty special in itself. She was just hidden away from the cameras, which was quite frustrating. Yeah, and everyone's probably going to ask you this, but what's the difference between a, a stoat and a weasel? I know uh, weasels are smaller, is that right? Yeah, yeah, weasels are much smaller, and it's probably the most um, uh, mislabeled mis species, the stoat and the weasel. You know, I look on websites, I look in books, and it says, and magazines, and they say, I'll go here to see stoats, and then they put a picture of a weasel in. So very, very simple. Uh, a stoat has a black tip on its tail and a weasel has a short little tail and weasels are you know they're much smaller but the difference in size between a female weasel and a male weasel is more than double the weight sometimes so a big a big weasel um, uh, you know it's not as big as a small stoat but the size you know a small female stoat you know she might be 200 and some grams and uh, but the male sort of a weasel will be about 130, 140. So there's still a hundred grams difference, you know, nearly, it's not double, but uh, yeah. So when you just see them scurrying around, I always say, if you see it scurrying across the road in front of you, which is what people often see, a weasel is almost like a, two sausages <laughs> put together. 
and they scurry very flat in motion uh, and stokes can sometimes have a very boundy uh, sort of movement arching their back especially when they're in sort of more playful modes but they they pronk a lot a lot more whereas a weasel running literally it's like ping it's just they're just running quite a straight straight fast line whereas there's more movement within a, a stoke that's running fast they bound a lot more uh, oh, but it's the black yeah. tip on the tail that always gives it away if you don't see the black tip of the tail you often see headshots in magazines weasels have a lovely little cheek marks under here uh, so there is a white area around here and then they have little cheek marks uh, under their under their chin here and weasels always have this and if we're going to get really technical the uh, the line in between the pale belly and the brown upper uh, is always straight in the stout and that's always jagged in a weasel in this country. Uh, that's not true of Ireland, but in this country. So <laughs> there's quite a few differences between them. And yeah. uh, I find it frustrating when, you know, there's, uh, you know, like the Woodland Trust or one of a big organisation mis mislabeling them. And I've found it on websites so many times, books, magazines, and uh, it's like if we've got to educate people as to which is which, really, and uh, it's, uh, you know, it's got to be done properly, really. No, it's one of my pet peeves if I'm around a nature reserve yeah. or something and you see a notice board and it'll have something misidentified. You're just face palming, like, oh, for God's <laughs> sake. You know. So uh, I, feel, I feel your pain there. Um, yeah. Do you tend to paint from a reference image then or is it more in your mind's eye? A little bit of both. So, um, you know, I see things sort of happening out there with nature and I just try and work out how I can recreate that sometimes. Um, and then other times, you know, I'll, I'll use an actual photograph or an image grab from a video. And uh, this is an actual Kestrel that I've studied this year uh, behind me on the drawing board. So I'm painting her. I'm not just painting a Kestrel. So I'm, I'm really sort of concentrating on getting her perfect uh, and it's that individual animal and that's what I like doing with the stoats and the weasels I paint. They're all individual animals that are now, they've all got names, it's a little bit silly, some people don't like to name wild, you know, don't like to name wildlife. But to me, if I don't name the wildlife, it's just like another stoat and I've had uh, 40 stoats in the garden that I've, you know, have identified uh, and there's been a few more that are not sort of recorded properly but I know them all by their facial markings um, so they're all individual animals. Bandita, she's uh, one of the most famous stoats in the world I think she's uh, been on a natural world program that then then has been seen across the world uh, in America, Canada, Mexico, Europe um, so that was a co-produced program uh, with CBS in America and, uh, and so that's that's sort of gone global but she's She's still with us now, and she was born 2016. Uh, she was born in just near one of my habitats, and then moved into one of my habitats. And I uh, saw her yesterday morning. So she's uh, a very special stoat, and she's due to go home in any any time now. Oh, that'd be amazing! I've never seen. I've, 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 yeah, in a few months. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah. never know, do you? I've never seen a, a, an ermine, yeah. a white a white stoat, but we do occasionally get them, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's get, getting less and less common. She's the only um, stoat that I've had in the garden that I know. Um, her brother started going ermine. Half his tail went ermine. He was going ermine round the face uh, and starting up round his belly onto his shoulders. But he never 
he never went fully earning. And Bandita, she's called Bandita because she retains a a little mask around her eyes of dark, <laughs> like a little bandit. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, great. So is there a subject that's particularly hard to paint then? I imagine the detail can be incredibly tricky on, on some species. Yeah, there, there is. Yeah, I mean, some of the easiest things to paint sometimes are the most complex. So things like uh, zebras, uh, you know, are going further afield than where yeah, we live here yeah, now. Not, not, not in your garden. Painting. Not in my garden. I've been to Africa <laughs> 13 times now. So, uh, you know, I've been very lucky to be able to travel to these amazing places. But in my garden, yeah, stokes and weasels are quite tricky because uh, the more animals are just one one colour or two colours, they're more difficult. So you've got the kestrel here on the drawing board behind me. That's easy because we've got all of the markings, the patination uh, to concentrate on. Whereas if you've got a stout that's like more than half brownie ginger, you've then got to make that look nice and three-dimensional. So those subjects, the ones that look easier are sometimes actually harder to capture in a way. Yeah, no, because I suppose you've, you've got to have a hundred, you know, not a hundred, but twenty or thirty different shades of ginger, haven't you? And you've got to make it look yeah, that's it. convincing. That's exactly. It. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so how long does it take you to produce a painting? Because I know some artists who can just raffle them out, and then other artists will take you know x amount of time. So, uh, I know it's it's probably a, a tricky question because it depends on each one. But typically, how long does it take yeah. you to? So, say the kestrel behind you, for example. How long did that take to do? Yes, yeah, so that would be. Um... Sometimes the bigger ones are not too bad, but this will be more than three weeks' work, this one. Okay. Um, so yeah, so I don't really rattle paintings out of this size. Potentially I could do, but you wouldn't get a painting like this. You know, um, watercolourists are a much faster, faster medium. Um, and, you know, I don't try and, you know, get too laborious with my paintings sometimes and spend loads of time. Uh, but I've got one that is seriously challenging me at, I've got one of tree sparrows here, and this has uh, got 19, 19 tree sparrows, all very detailed. Yeah, yeah. And it's going to have a lot of blossom on here and things. Now that's going <laughs> to, that's taken, that's taken forever. So I haven't even added up the time. I have absolutely no idea. I've been working on it uh, a lot of this year. It's a commission for someone. And uh, yeah, very challenging picture to do this on. So I photographed all these sparrows. Um, in little groups or individually out in the studio window. They're all out there now chattering away. Um, so, so, so ones like that, yeah, that's, that's going to take me a long, long time. But, uh, you know, it could be eight weeks, eight weeks work that one. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, sort of big, bold paintings don't necessarily take as long as little detailed, detailed ones. It's, you've got to imagine the amount of brush strokes that you're putting in. And if you've got something bigger, and bolder um, it might look as if it's taken loads more time but in actual fact something like that will take a lot more time than something like this yeah no that yeah. that makes sense I see I see what you're saying and I'm going to ask what your favorite subject is to work on I suspect I know the answer but I'll ask it anyway <laughs> what what is your favorite subject to work on oh god I don't have a f I don't, to actually paint I don't actually have yeah, a favorite that's, you don't oh that's a cop sounds out terrible, <laughs> It's a total cop out, isn't it? Um, I think I've painted more badges than any other animal that I've painted, I should think. And and rodeo, I just love rodeo and the the um, the sort of shapes and the lines that the they're, they're the prettiest deer, aren't they? 
Yeah, I, 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 by far, yeah. I mean, if I see roe deer, I'll go to a lot of effort to get close to them and study them. If I see red deer, I'll go to a lot of effort. If I see a fallow deer or a seeker deer or one of the other uh, munchaks or the other deers, I, I don't know. I, I, they just don't do it for me. The roe deer are so special and so pretty. And, uh, you know, the, you can't beat being in a highland glen with a with a a rut going on around you and all the roaring um, yeah but it's those yeah and and the simplicity of badges as well the black and white i absolutely love um you know i i love doing the badges and uh, i watched them for years as well so it's not only the stoats and the weasels uh, it's badgers otters pine martins when i get up to scotland yeah i just yeah. it's the muscular family in particular so i do like all of the muscular family and painting those and studying them and it's the ones that in a way that the subjects that are hardest to study that I get most reward from. I, I studied barn owls a lot. I've got 150 nest boxes that I've put up for barn owls. So I do a lot of work with barn owls as well. But because stoats are so, stoats and weasels are so tricky and no one else has achieved, um, you know, in a way what I've achieved with them, being able to film them throughout the year and um, when they're young, the breeding cycle, things uh, that's what i'm sort of probably most well known for but I, I i love all british wildlife kingfishers love kingfishers yeah you can't beat the electric um, blue can you yeah yeah and there's such cheeky things as well you know during the breeding season the whole um you know the whole sort of breeding cycle because they don't really particularly like each other at the beginning of the year at all and they've got to come together to breed they're quite feisty territorial and just watching that process as they gradually sort of calm down and then start doing the fish passes. Um, it's uh, absolutely fascinating, the kingfishers as well. So I've been lucky enough to film them in the nest uh, as well a few times, actually nest chamber, which is, uh, yeah, that's sort of, that's absolutely well up there with uh, the things that I've done. Uh, that's that's close years. to home for you again, is it? No, this is 10 miles away. Oh, is I, it? I live okay. high up on the... Yeah, yeah, no. I don't live in any water. No. If, if I had this place perfect, I'd have a, uh, I live high up on the Yorkshire Wells, beautiful scenery, grasslands with lots of wildflowers. Uh, if I had it perfect, I think I'd have a va uh, valley, uh, lots of valleys here. Need a river running down a valley, I'd need a lake. Just over here would be nice to have a quarry. And yeah. um, I've got a little wood at the back here that I've planted myself, which is coming on really well, but I think I'd have like a forest out in the back. And maybe a wetland somewhere as well, and maybe the sea. The sea a bit closer as well. Yeah, not not. <laughs> then that'd be perfect, wouldn't it? Don't ask, don't ask <laughs> so much then. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is a really special place, but that's the only frustration. When I moved somewhere, I always thought I'd be nearer water than I am now, and uh, in the river system or some streams. Um, yeah. Yeah, obviously in touch with the water and the river systems and yeah. things there with your work. Yeah, definitely. I don't. I, I used to live a five-minute walk from a river, and I've mo I moved house about three months ago, so I'm a little bit further away now. There is a canal not too far away, but it's not quite the same as a as a nice river. So, yeah, but it's not too bad. You you've looked after quite a few wild animals in your time as well, haven't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've uh, since a little boy, I've been looking after sort of wild animals, and uh, over the years, I've obviously got better and better of it. And uh, it's a case of then trying to get those wild animals back into the wild. And that, that 
of the rehabilitation process to actually have a success story at the end of it is probably the most crucial and the most difficult bit in a way because it's very time-consuming raising little baby animals. Uh, so I, I do some of it myself. I work with other people, uh, rehabilitation centres, and uh, often my job is to get those animals back into the wild successfully. And uh, yeah, it can be tricky. So I do a lot of surrogacy work. So I surrogate uh, some owl chicks into other owl nests and uh, kestrels. Uh, I do it with those species as well, so tawny owls, barn owls. And, uh, you know, it's amazing what is possible with some species uh, that the owls, you know, the wise old owl isn't actually that wise, that they'll accept, readily accept uh, chicks from other nests. And I, I, I work 90%, more than 90% of the time, I want people just to leave the wildlife where it is. And, uh, you know, that's where it actually belongs in the wild. A little tawny owl on the floor looking helpless, a little chick. It's just completely normal behaviour. Every tawny owl chick fledges too early. Every tawny owl chick ends up on the floor and every tawny owl chick ends up looking wet at some stage. And that's just nature. That's how tawny owls live. Uh, and people often pick them up. Uh, and the problem that we have is people will take them into the vets, drop them off at the vets. They don't leave a name and address. So we don't know where this owl has come from. So these owls, I get in those circumstances, so if someone rings me, I say, just leave it. If it's not injured, you know, if the, you're always at risk when you pick up an owl chick as well with a tawny owl that they can come and uh, attack you. Uh, the parents and I have been attacked many times by the owls that live here because they know me so well and it hurts. <laughs> so, so you've got to be really cautious with tawny owls and picking those chicks up and getting them up off the ground. There always almost needs to be two of you there rather than doing that on your own because they come in so fast and uh, most of them won't bother you at all but when they do come in you hear a rush of wings and your temptation is to turn around and you know um, Eric Hoskins obviously lost an eye by a tawny owl so they're quite formidable things. Is that right? I didn't of, know that. Yeah 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 so they're quite uh, yeah I mean I've had some you know quite nasty injuries from tawny owls and I go with a leather hat on and a visor and uh, I thought one day, well, I'll just put some buffs on my neck. And the tawny owl knew I had a leather hat on and a visor. And it then went for my uh, neck. Now, if it hits one of these veins with those dirty talons, yeah. it can be in trouble quite quickly. You know, I had blood poisoning from being bitten by a weasel. <laughs> oh my things God. like that. <laughs> it, it tracked up to my shoulder, the, uh, the infection. And uh, I was told to go to the doctors immediately. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah. um, yeah, so, so uh, you, you've got to be careful of the wildlife and yeah. respectful of it. But I, I love doing the, getting the birds back into the wild and the animals. I do it with stoats and weasels. And because we've got so many cameras around and cameras in the nest that we're doing this surrogacy work for, you know, we're actually following, following it on camera as well. So we know whether it's successful, we know when we fail. Weasels probably are the most trickiest uh, of all to get back into the wild. Because the, with them being tiny, tiny, tiny little things, you know, a female, two wood mice are bigger than a female weasel. Uh, so it gives you an idea of size, 60, 65 grams. Uh, so if there's any, they have to be absolutely um, perfect little specimens to go out there. And if I hand re rear one from a little tiny kit, um, they don't have that um, awareness of uh, what's happening around them. 
and I've released them in the garden before and they're just playing and playing around like little idiots out in the open, whereas wild weasels don't do that. You know, they're hidden away in the hedgerows and you see one occasionally uh, and they're not just scampering around playing. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so they're the hardest ones to get a success story with, I would say. Yeah, yeah, it's not. It's definitely not a tricky, uh, tricky thing to do, but incredibly rewarding when uh, when it does happen. Like yeah, yeah. So you mentioned natural world earlier. So your yourself and and the animals that you've you've worked on close to home have, have appeared on quite a few programs now, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. I always like um, sort of sharing the sort of stuff that I'm doing, whether it be on television or social media. Um, you know, just try and get as many people enthused about. Uh, wildlife and especially our British wildlife because I, I just think it's brilliant you know I'm very very lucky that I've been to every continent in the world and I've traveled to some of the most amazing places you know I used to watch David Attenborough as a little child and to think now I've been to a lot of those places uh, that are featured on these huge documentaries is uh, you know it's really really special but what I'll never uh, leave and forget about is our British wildlife because it's it's as special, it's as dramatic, and uh, you know, the drama that you're seeing them playing in the garden. I saw a female le weasel leave a nest with all the kits, which is just to this side of my studio. And she went off, she called them up, and she went off. And I just thought, I wonder where she's going. So I headed out this side of the studio just to see where she was going. And she popped through the grasses, and uh, then I heard all this squealing and more squealing. And she'd actually taken the, the kits that were 42 days old and uh, she went to take them to a rat's nest uh, to raid a rat's nest as their this was their one of their first outings oh my god <laughs> and you thought she'd she would start them off uh, gently um because uh you know a big female adult rat if she was wanting to protect those uh, little uh, you know a little young uh it could have all of a sudden turned out very bad for those young weasels on their first outing but they uh, I went to one area where I could hear the screen and I just parted the grass and there was a monumental battle with one of the male weasels and a young rat that was just slightly bigger uh, than it. Uh, an absolute battle ensuing as I parted the grass and just never seen anything like it. You know, how a weasel, I've hand red weasels so I know how they hunt but it's a full, full wrap round grab. They use the front paws They you want to deliver that. Uh, killer bite to the back of the neck and that's what they're trying to do but they're also using their back back claws uh, and feet gripping so it's a full wrap round experience <laughs> uh, that, they, that they give and they twist and turn uh, trying to avoid uh, being bitten by the rat themselves because uh, it's you know rats have you know tremendous bite on them and they're uh, watching them twisting and spinning and gradually the uh, the, the weasel managed to subdue the rat and to kill it, but it was just like <laughs> incredible thing. And just in the grasses, just a bit further away, there was another one of these little stories playing out where another weasel had caught another another rat, uh, and it was just an incredible thing to see. And I just then, I just thought, well, come away and leave them to it now. I'd love to be able to film it, uh, but it just wasn't the sort of time I just nipped out and witnessed this complete and utter drama going on and I've seen the cheetahs taking down gazelles in Africa and this was up there it's as special as seeing that this was it was quite incredible it, it is a mini Serengeti in your back garden isn't it for, for anyone's back garden really yeah. it's it yeah 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 whether it's the insects 
the mammals, the birds, there's so much happening. We've got now, I've lost count now, but about 80 or 90 cameras here on site. And uh, so we've got them in tawny owl nests, barn owl nests, kestrel nests, and just those three species. Throw a squirrel in there as well, and the jackdaws, stock doves. Just those dramas that you see within within just a short periods of time where one barn owl might fly into another one of uh, the kestrel's nest box, and then this whole scenario starts unfolding where. You know, the, the tawny owl then gets upset because the barn owl flies into, you know, escapes from the kestrel, flies into another nest box. The tawny owl comes in and has a go at the, the barn owl. And it's actually a barn owl from last year's brood. But the tawny owl then goes uh, to the barn owl nest box and then actually takes revenge on, on that and knocks the barn owl back into the nest box by its head. And it, it's actually the wrong barn owl. They're blaming the wrong barn owl. But literally within a few minutes, all of this sort of stuff can unfold. And then you've got the jackdaws vying for the nest sites as well, stealing eggs, sometimes stealing chicks uh, of the kestrels. So it's absolutely, <laughs> it's gripping. And uh, we've got monitors uh, displaying all this sort of uh, uh, behaviour. Look, baby barn owls on screen at the moment here, second brood. Um, oh, wow, yeah. Sometimes the parents are roosting in here or in top of my workshop there so uh, so we're able to keep it's a lovely day out here there today so the, the barn owls are just roosting in the wood at the back so they're just not on camera the adults yeah so they, there's, they, there's always stuff happening yeah that's how you want it definitely and if someone wanted to become a, a wildlife artist now what kind of advice would you have for them uh, the, the, the main bit of advice is to actually know your subject and uh, I actually study a subject, um, you know, don't sit at home just like copying stuff out of books and things and magazines, actually get out there, study a subject and uh, get to grips, even if it's just, you know, even if it's just the sparrows in your garden, there's so much available wildlife-wise for us and, uh, and possibly don't always do the obvious thing, you know, I'm a, you know, I've got to make a living, I've got a business to run. But sometimes the most fascinating things I've done is just drawing a wasp or, you know, when I was younger, uh, you know, finding little things, you know, shells, you know, start off, I used to start off doing feathers, skulls um, and things like that. So I actually know the anatomy of your animals as well um, and I know how they're put together. <laughs> You're not going to be yeah. able to draw one until, <laughs> until you know the anatomy and how they work and how, how the sort of joints work and things. Uh, yeah. but that's that's the main that's the main thing for me is actually knowing knowing your subject uh, but also not there's more enjoyment that way and actually knowing not just yeah literally learning it inside out whether it's a call if you hear a bird call it's like oh that's a bird call well what bird is it actually learn all of that and um, I've learned it the old-fashioned way is actually just watching uh, taking it all in there's a lot a lot of easier ways to learn it nowadays with uh, recordings and films and such like. But my, my favourite bit is actually uh, being outside, actually absorbing all of nature and then uh, start putting it down onto, you know, onto canvas or to board or whatever. Yeah. No, I'd agree. It's, it's similar to wildlife photography, really. I'd, I'd say the same thing. Yeah. You can know how to use a camera, but you've got to know, know about your subject and 
that's going to greatly, greatly help. Uh, well, before we go, I think we should find out uh, whereabouts your, your gallery is in North Yorkshire and if people want to find out a little bit more about the sort of work that you do. So you're, you said North Yorkshire, yeah. but yeah, whereabouts are you? Yeah, so I live up high up on the Yorkshire Wells, uh, which uh, start again. <laughs> so I live high up on the Yorkshire Wells in a place called Fixendale. Uh, so it's a beautiful area, a uh, chalkland area. Uh, so it's not far from York. And then we've got uh, across all social media on all the platforms. And you just look for my name, Robert E. Fuller. And the E is quite important. You might pick up a, uh, an old actor, cowboy actor, um, but we're, uh, we've got quite a good following now. So uh, we should be easy to find. Okay, just check for weasels and not, not uh, Smith & Weston. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, no problem. That was Robert E. Fuller telling us a little bit about his craft and exploring his passion and profession as a wildlife artist. Now, I was thinking, what can I do for a top five today? Now, I talk about wildlife gardening quite a lot in this podcast. You'll, if you flick through, most of the people that I chat to in some shape or form are wildlife gardeners. So I thought, let's do five things that you can do to improve wildlife in your garden. And the first one, and I, and I would arguably say the most important one, is dig yourself a pond. Get a pond in your garden. It doesn't need to be massive, the size of a sink would do. Washing up bowl, something like that, would be absolutely fine. And you know, if you can't dig into your garden, even if you just put a bowl of water out, a couple of rocks, a couple of pond plants, you'd be amazed at what would take up residence. Uh, I'm lucky that my garden, it's not huge, but it's not too bad, and I've got a fairly large pond uh, in my garden now, and I'm really pleased with how, how it's looking. The amount of biodiversity it improves, because there are just some animals that you just simply won't get in your garden if you don't have a pond. And of course, all animals need to drink, so there's a focal point for that. So get yourself a pond. It doesn't need to be huge, just get a pond in your garden. Now, one habitat that's in decline in a lot of gardens in favour of fences is bushes. Bushes are really, really good, partly because they don't create a hard border between gardens. Most animals can fit through gaps in bushes. They provide refuge for things like sparrows and small passerine birds. So having some hedgerows and bushes in your garden are really important. Now, I've got wooden fences in mine, but I have actually planted some wild hedging. I've got wild privet, hawthorn, blackthorn, uh, buckthorn, all the thorns, uh, maple, all these different kinds of wild trees and hopefully they're going to kind of grow up and create a little bit of a mini hedgerow, but a mini wild hedgerow. So they're really handy because there's lots of species that will live in that and species that are kind of plant specific, whether it's butterflies feeding off the flowers or the caterpillars uh, feeding on the leaves. Then you've also got the birds eating the berries on them. So get some bushes in there. They also provide great cover against predators. Now a wildflower patch. Uh, is good now again i've gone a little bit over the top in my garden i've got my, my entire front lawn is a wildflower patch and i've just planted that up but even if it's just a plant pot just something with some some wildflowers is is really good wildflowers are, are, are fantastic to have and i'd always recommend native ones but the thing with native wildflowers is they don't uh, produce nectar for very long so you've got to really pick plants that are going to flower throughout the year so for example i've got things like snowdrops daffodils bluebells because they flower slowly throughout the spring. And then I'll pick things like cowslips, which flower early on. And then maybe later on in the year, you've got things like devil's bit scabious and oxeye daisy, which have a slightly longer flowering period. You always want some kind of flower 
in your uh, in your little meadow so that the next to loving insects like bees and butterflies have got something to feed on. So have a little wildflower patch. One thing that many people don't think to put in their gardens is a hibernaculum. And that's basically somewhere for reptiles and amphibians to, to hibernate in. It's really simple to do. You just dig down. Uh, ideally, 60 centimetres is, is perfect, but you could get away with 30. Fill it with rocks, with logs and things like that. Leaf litter, and then cover it with a little bit of soil. Make sure there are some little gaps so things can bury into it. That will greatly improve the amount of frogs and newts that you've got in your garden if they've got somewhere to hibernate safely and keep it a stable temperature. It doesn't necessarily have to be right next to the pond. I've put mine next to my pond, but you could have it anywhere in the garden. They'll find it and they'll use it. And it also adds up as a great bug hotel as well. Now, the last thing I'll mention is bat boxes. We always have bird boxes in our garden, but few people think to put bat boxes in. Typically, as long as it's higher than six foot, you know, higher than things like cats can reach, uh, on your on a tree or on your house, that's absolutely ideal. I've not put mine up yet, but at the side of my house, I am going to put a few bat boxes because in the summer, I was enjoying watching them uh, come down to my pond and take insects. So I don't know what species they are. Probably Dorbentons if they're taking insects off the water, but you never know. So that would be brilliant. So get a bat box in your garden. So that's five relatively simple things that you can do to improve wildlife in your garden. Now, next week, I am joined by the one and only Sophie Pavel. We are going to be chatting a little bit about beavers. I know she gets bombarded with beaver questions, so we're going to be talking a little bit more about her career, how social media influences young nature enthusiasts, and a whole range of other quirky and interesting subjects. I'm really looking forward to that chat. This has been the Bearded Tits podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I will catch you in the next one. Cheers. <laughs>